Welcome to Sisters Inc., our podcast for and about women business owners, brought to you by Black Enterprise. I'm your host, Elisa Gums. Black women are the fastest growing group of entrepreneurs in America. And on every episode of Sisters Inc., we sit down with one successful CEO and share how she slays the challenges of being a Black woman in business. Today's episode is all about connecting with your culture. We're chatting with Tony Gilliard, founder of Tipsy Lady Cocktails, a new line of premium, ready-to-drink, Caribbean-inspired cocktails that celebrate heritage, culture, and flavor. Welcome to Sisters, Inc., Tony, and thanks so much for sitting down with us. Thank you for having me. I'm excited. So before founding this company, you had a whole other professional life as a lawyer and a real estate agent. And then the spark for Tipsy Lady came to you in 2019 while you were on vacation in Barbados. Tell us that story. Well, when I was having what I call an early midlife crisis, <laughs> I probably look like I'm nowhere near 50, but I was having an early midlife crisis. I was getting tired of law. I was an immigration defense attorney and did some international law and had just started with the real estate. And I made a last minute decision. My stepfather was going home and I was like, I'm coming. And then I went. And on that journey um, is when I connected with my spirit and my ancestors and asking what next for me. And it was then that I was touring the factories. It came to me as clear as day, which was use the gift that I've given you. And then as I'm looking around, I'm like, okay, this is it. Rum punch, because I make a wicked rum punch, but I wanted to do something that honored heritage and flavor. And I wanted it to be done right in an organic and natural way but taste authentic. So when I got back to the States, I began the journey of commercializing my recipe. So, you know, I know your story, but for those people out there, when you say you were touring the factories, like paint the picture for us, like where were you, right. what was going on? Okay, so before I left, I, I went in my closet at home and I was having a moment. And then I collect foreign currency from when I traveled and lived abroad in various countries. And when I was reaching in my closet, a box fell and the currency that fell was um, an Italian currency as well as a Bayesian currency. So I looked at it and I was like, well, I know I ain't going to Italy <laughs> this time of year. So I was like, okay, Barbados it is. And then I called my mom and I was like, you know, are y'all going to BIM? And she's like, well, I'm not going, but he's going. And then I went online, booked the ticket immediately. And then like day two, went on the rum, did the touristy thing because I hadn't been there in 21 years. I studied at UE Law uh, 21 years prior and went to the rum factory, kind of revisit the spaces that I had um, visited when I lived there for um, a short period of time when I was studying law. And I got goosebumps the whole time. I felt like, okay, I and then I don't even know if these signs are still there, but in my mind, it's like I saw black gold. I kept seeing black gold, black gold. And so I look still to, I look through my photos now and I'm like, where did I see this? Like, did this really happen? So I'm gonna be going in <laughs> July to make sure that I'm not crazy because I literally saw black gold. And then, you know, I got goosebumps and teary eyed. And then it just was, it was clear, it was clear as day. It was use the gift that I've given you. Like I've given you everything you need to be successful. And I knew it wasn't law and I knew it wasn't real estate, although I was enjoying real estate on the commercial residential side and actually pursuing real estate in Barbados. But it was clear, it was your creative spirit. Use the gift that I've given you, which was the rum punch. 
Wow. I think all of us who have ever visited our homelands can relate to how moving and powerful it is to be in that space and to feel the presence of our ancestors. But you got a very specific message. Um, and I'm not sure that most people would know what to do with that. So can you talk us through that leap? Because that's a very big pivot from being a lawyer to starting a spirits company. Right, very different trajectory of, of, of spirit, right? So it was, I'm still being of service, but for me, it was bigger than me. It was very clear um, about getting rid of appropriation of things, of natural resources that come from countries like them. Um, Rum was founded in that country in 1650. So for me, it was also inspiring to see some of the rum companies being led by Caribbean women and they were killing it in the game. And so for me, it was like, I wanna be strategically aligned with that. That is legacy. Um, so for me, it was, it was very clear. It wasn't like, okay, how am I gonna do it? It was just literally trust spirit. When I started to formulate, the way I formulate wasn't even a process, the way it's made. Um, some contractors that I've, you know, scientists that I've negotiated with, they wanted to do it a different direction and put preservatives and all the things, but I stayed true to spirit and true to the assignment of what I was supposed to do. And I wasn't going to waver. So it took me about three years to get it to where it needed to be, but I was very clear. I wanted the soap, the can to be a certain way. Like it was as if I dreamt this. And when people are like, oh, you can go in this direction. I'm like, nah, that ain't what spirit told me to do. I got to trust spirit. <laughs> well, you can't do it. So I said, well, I can't do it now, but it doesn't mean it's not going to happen because I'm going to trust spirit along the journey. And it was a very easy decision. Like some people said, did you have other names? No, it's always been tipsy lady, but it had nothing to do with being slightly drunk. It was a play on words, right? Tipping the scales in the alcohol industry as it relates to women of color and ownership. And I would not waver the name. I wouldn't change the recipe. I was like, this is what I'm supposed to be doing. So even though you're of Caribbean descent, you were born and raised and are still based in Charleston, South Carolina. Can you share with us your family background and how connected you were with Caribbean culture before you founded Tipsy Lady? So I'm actually a New Yorker. I'm a native New Yorker. Okay. I was born and raised in New York. I was born in the Bronx, but raised in Midtown Manhattan. And my younger years went to school in Harlem. Um, my community was very diverse with Caribbean and Latin culture. So I learned to speak Spanish at the tender age of seven um, fluently. But my Gullah Geechee roots, which is Charleston, is my grandmother and my mom. They were born and raised in Charleston, South Carolina. And Barbados and Charleston has a very strong connection. So you'll see the landscape in Charleston looks very similar to places in, in Barbados. We call it them and them. So it'll look very similar, right? So when you go, you feel like you're in Charleston. It's the weirdest thing. And we're actually sister cities, um, Barbados and Charleston, which is also interesting. And for many years, the way my grandmother speaks, which is very Gullah Geechee, was no different from my Bayesian grandfather. So my friends for years thought she was Bayesian as well. And I'm like, no, she's from the South. <laughs> but the South is a different kind of South when you, when you focus on the cultural components of being a Gullah Geechee, um, the Gullah Geechee culture. Okay. And what, um, what was your, how did you incorporate uh, your Caribbean heritage into your life before Tipsy lady, was this just like you know 
a journey for you where you're like, you know, I, I got to figure this out, how to be authentic, or did you always feel connected to the culture? I always felt connected because how we were raised, like we ate Bayesian food as kids. Um, I made rum punch all the time once I became of age to drink, <laughs> right? <laughs> That um, part's important. That's important. Um, so it's always been a part of my culture and my upbringing. So it was no different for me. It wasn't like I had to kind of reinvent the wheel or do research. It literally was a part of my fabric of who I am and how I was raised. So it was a no brainer. It wasn't like, oh, I got to research how, how to do rum punch. Like, this is how I make it. And if, if you know rum punch, you know, it's made differently in different co in countries, right? And every household is different. So mine's a little different than what you would see sometimes in certain bars in Barbados or Jamaica, it's, it's different. So it's just a mixture of, I call love and spice. <laughs> love and spice, that's a good one, yes. I'm not gonna share my rum punch recipe either. <laughs> Everyone keeps it closely guarded. And so when people ask me, I give them, you know, there's a little rhyme, one part sour, two parts sweet, three parts strong, four parts weak. And they're yes. like, what does that mean? <laughs> like when you know, you know. <laughs> When you know, you know, exactly. Yeah. So what are the kinds of things that you have put into place around the brand to make sure that it's authentic? Because I know that was really important to you that it's authentic. One was the packaging to make sure the packaging was inviting, but also feminine. Um, but irony is a lot of my consumers who purchase are males. So they always make jokes about they have become tipsy ladies as well. Um, so the packaging had to be Caribbean, but not overtly Caribbean in nature. Um, which, you know, you see like the water flow. So it's like subliminal messaging on the can. So the packaging, um, the flavor profile had to be authentic. It had to be or natural and organic. I had to use rum. I didn't want to substitute it for anything else. Um, as far as the branding message and having the conversation and letting people know unapologetically that it's about tipping the scales as it relates to women of color and ownership unapologetic about it. There's no hesitation in it because that's what it is. And I believe that the brand is bigger than the rum punch. I think for me, it's about setting the tone and the stage for other people who may have recipes in their families. It could be jerk because I have a whole jerk recipe that I danced around called, you know, which I want was such a jerk is my recipe. And it's about taking your culture and not allowing others to appropriate it and make money and profit from it. So it's bigger than the rum punch is what I say. It's bigger than me. It's bigger than Tipsy Lady. It's about encouraging others to step, get out of their own way and to honor legacy, honor heritage, honor, honor flavor and profit from it. So the cocktails come in three flavors, rum punch, as we mentioned, a mojito and a sunrise mimosa, which adds a tropical twist to the classic mimosa in the form of mango. How did you land on those three flavors to start? So I love mimosas, but I always added mango puree to my, my mimosas. And I always added an extra, which is alcohol. So, so my mimosa is not just wine based, right? It also has vodka as well as mango. And then the mango concept came from one, my love for mangoes and it's very Caribbean, but also it's a love story. So on my journey in Barbados, which is just weird that I'm telling this story, right? <laughs> but I met the most amazing gentleman on that journey. And on that journey of finding, trying to open up hot chakras and all the things, I fell in love, right? 
<laughs> we're still really good friends. We're not like a couple or anything, but I fell in love and the mangoes is paying respect to that space because it was then that I discovered how to eat mangoes in the sea. So we would eat, go on the beach and I would pull the mangoes from the tree and then we would sunbathe and dip in the sea and then just literally eat the mangoes in the ocean. So that is where sunrise were most. And then we would watch the most beautiful sunrises and beautiful sunsets. So it's, it's really the inspiration was a love story. Oh, wow. A, a very Caribbean love story. <laughs> I love that. Um, can you share with us what your research and development process was like to formulate the flavors? You mentioned earlier that, you know, there were a, a lot of people that you worked with that didn't want to do it the way that you wanted to do it. Um, and I know that it wasn't an easy process for you. It took two years and you spent thousands of dollars actually trying to formulate the product. So the formulation was tough. I would make the recipe, make the batches and then send them to formulate. And some formulators did not want the recipe. They didn't want the actual turnkey product. They would say, give us, after I did my NDA, cause I'm still a lawyer, give us the recipe and the measurements and then we'll recreate. But they just missed the mark because they didn't taste it. So after like, going at least through four different formulators, I found one who was a referral from another mentor who said, hey, I think I've got the person for you. And the first question he asked was, can you send me a sample? That was the first time I ever had that question. Most people just wanted the recipe. They didn't want the sample. He instantly said, I want to see what the flavor profile is. So in addition to your recipe, send me bottles of what you make, and we want to be able to duplicate the taste, not just the recipe. And he got it the first time. He got yeah. it the first time. There was no tweaking or any, and I gave him the rum punch first because that's the most complicated because there's about between 13 and 16 ingredients in my rum punch, which is insane. He was able to execute the first time. And after he was able to do that with the first, I was like, oh, the mojito will be very simple. The mimosa would be very simple because it's like simple ingredients. So, um, but it was a lot of money. And then some consultants wanted equity. They're like, oh, well, we don't, we want equity in exchange for doing this because this is a great concept. So if you don't want to pay us to be consultants, you can give us equity. And I'm like, nah, we ain't about to do that. <laughs> I can still pay you your monthly fee to do the thing that I've hired you to do without giving up my company. So um, it was, it was interesting, an interesting ride. Um, and one, finding a formulator who didn't want to add anything extra preservatives, um, as well as aligning myself strategically with people who didn't want a piece of the pie, who kind of felt like weren't participating in the pro process because I wouldn't give them a piece of the pie. But again, I trust spirit. I prayed on it. And I was like, I know you didn't bring me this far for me to not move forward. I'm going to honor that. So there were a lot of no's. There were definitely a lot of no's for me to say no, because it's not right. I think that's something that a lot of entrepreneurs can relate to, and especially a lot of women entrepreneurs, I think, because so often we are taking things that have been our own creations that we made with our own hands in our own kitchens, or our own garages, or our own basements. And then the process from getting to this thing that you formulated on your own in small batches with love to a product that can be out on the shelves or can you know be sold directly to consumers is such a big jump so now that you're on the other side of that formulation do you have like some lessons that you've learned or that you can share with other entrepreneurs who are going through it 
Well, the benefit is that I have a legal background, but for those who don't, and even if you do still, I still have an attorney to review contracts. Like I know what I know, and I've been a transactional attorney for a substantial period of time, but I still have an attorney. Most of the legal stuff I did myself, but I think with new entrepreneurs, make sure you have an attorney review everything. Also trust spirit, meaning if this is something that was spirit led, your spirit is not going to lead you astray. Trust your gut. If you feel funny about a relationship with business, it's no different from romantic relationships, meaning that butterfly in your belly is telling you something, not telling you, oh, this is the love of my life or the love of my life as far as a business partner or relationship is concerned. It is a, a red, for me, it's a red light. It's, it's a warning signal, right? I say, trust that. If it doesn't feel right, it is not right. So the two tips I would give you is one, always find a qualified attorney to review your contracts because sometimes when you don't have capital, you feel the need to kind of over, over, not really process strategically all of the things that need to be done because of your desperation of I need capital. So I'm gonna give up 40% equity in my company because I don't have the money. I say, just wait on it because there's so many other options that are available as far as funding is concerned from angel investors or refinancing your house. I refinanced my house like three times. <laughs> so, you, you know, so there's, there are other ways to tap into other resources, but don't be so quick to get in bed, get in bed with someone because you don't have the capital you think you need. You just kind of have to walk it down. And then you, you know, I use credit cards. There are other things that you can use to fund your dream and your vision where you're not so quick to give up equity in your company because you need $10,000 or you need $40,000 and you're realizing that doesn't even scratch the surface of what you'll probably need, but you've given up equity. I'm so glad you mentioned the capital because you know you said it costs a lot of money. It's, it's a big outlay to put in before you even can get to the possibility of having a product that you can sell to get some revenue in. And you did all of this really during the pandemic since you got the idea in 2019 and then launched um, in January of this year with the product. So, I mean, what was that process like for you in terms of your startup capital? That was, uh, it was spirit-based, right? So you had, for me, I didn't have the capital, but I had real estate. And where most people thought real estate was gonna crash, I was the busiest ever because people, when people were inside, scared that they're going to get COVID. I'm like, I came back from Cartagena with it. I'm good. Mask up and I'm going to sell these houses. <laughs> so when people were, and then people were trying to liquidate assets, I'm mostly a listing agent. So people were nervous. They were immediately trying to sell off their houses. And I was right there. Okay. Put mask on, glove, do whatever's necessary to get the money while I can get the money to be able to fund the dream. And as far as refinancing, they had all these moratoriums. I was like, I can still pay my mortgage. I don't need to do all that. However, I was able to see how interest rates were declining, refinance, cash out, use money to put in the business. But you have some entrepreneurs who aren't homeowners, who, are, who don't have property. You utilize different options where you got side hustles to fund the dream. I know a couple of people who were cooking dinners in their kitchen and selling them, you know, or meal prepping, you know, so far as funding is concerned, you just kind of think outside the box in order to fund the vision. And with COVID, one, the real estate market definitely helped with the capital, but also it gave me an opportunity 
to look at the space, which is the canned cocktail space, meaning before COVID, it was like taboo. We don't like no canned wine. It was like looked down upon. I'm like, no, but it has to be made right. <laughs> but if it's made right, and then you saw everyone ordering online, having Zoom parties, canned cocktail industry skyrocketed. And then everyone was like, oh, you're not crazy. This might be a thing. And then when things leveled out for, you know, somewhat with COVID, the numbers didn't go back to pre-COVID. They actually increased. And you see most of the major brands now shifted to putting their things in cans. So it was interesting. It was a, definitely a, a spirit walk. And, it, and I was very happy that I trusted spirit to say, okay, I know this is not what is normally done, but I know this is what I was told I was supposed to do. And look at it. Everybody's in a can. <laughs> I know. Everybody's in a can. <laughs> Um, I loved it because during the height of the pandemic, I know some people were doing Zoom birthday parties and they were just ordering, you know, the spirits to send to all of their friends and family so that they could all share together. It you right. know, found a, a new way to uh, to celebrate and to cheers virtually. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned before that the name of the company Tipsy Lady is a nod to the fact that you want to tip the scales in the alcohol beverage industry towards female ownership. Tell us how you're doing that. So one is by telling the story. Um, the name, it's a great name from what I've heard. They like Tipsy Lady, but most people immediately think about being slightly drunk. So I am able to capture the audience with the name. But once they hear the brand story and they hear about it, then it becomes an inspiration to other people who, one, realize, you know what? I don't know anybody of color who owns an alcohol brand who's not a celebrity. And then even during that time, during COVID, you see a lot of celebrities in the wine space, mostly in the wine space, because it's, it's cheaper to make <laughs> and it's easier to package. Whereas the craft cocktail space, there really aren't many um, women in general, but more particular women of color. Just your everyday girl next door, woman next door who actually occupies this space. And even going into some of those meetings with some of the big box retailers, and you're looking at the boardrooms of the decision makers, right? There's no one at that table to, that looks like me. So in getting these distribution deals grassroots, I am always the only person of color and I'm also only the only female of color. So for me, it's about representation really matter being, you know, it really matters and having myself be the face of the brand, even though I've tried to remove myself from the face of the brand. Like, no, it's about the product, not about me. But it helps where representation and diversity in the marketplace definitely matters, not just from shelf, but also the boardroom where people are making decisions to invite those who look like me into the space. But you also are supporting um, entrepreneurship through some of the proceeds from the product, right? Yes. So a portion of the proceeds go to youth entrepreneurship programs or female programs to encourage um, entrepreneurship education, but also seed money. So even if it's something so nominal as $500 to this high school student who has developed a product, and it doesn't have to be a food-based product, they just need seed money, t-shirt line, whatever the case may be. That small donation, which may be small to me, is big to them to show them that, you know, operate in your gift and your gift will make way for you. I know that you're um, just starting out, but since this venture started with the word legacy, I have to ask you what you hope the legacy of Tipsy Lady will be. So I would hope that Tipsy Lady, it becomes like the... <laughs> 
the Budweiser's of the world. So you, I, I don't think anybody has ever seen Mr. Budweiser or Mrs. Budweiser himself, but that is the goal. So I, w- I want Tipsy Lady to precede me in death. My kids have made it very clear that they don't want to sell cocktails. They don't want to go to law school and they don't want to sell real estate. They all both want to be in the medical field. I don't know what how that happened. But for me, it's building the company with the board of directors I have in place and this, you know, the the I say the team, the leadership team in place so that it precedes me in death. And then initially like focus on the launch of the foundation so that things are in the legal structure that we will continue to give back to those youth programs, those entrepreneurship programs for women or women of color, as well as youth on a continual basis of the company. So the goal is to to be like the Budweiser of the world for years to come. So you've got your exit strategy already figured out right at the beginning. Yes, I always believe when you do business, start backwards. Don't start to begin. Start backwards. Like, where do I see myself? You know, like, where do I? Why am I doing? Why am I doing the thing? So for me, it's okay. This is bigger than me, but it's great to be along the journey and, and enjoy the party, the ride. But it's bigger than me. So for me, it's where do I want it? And then I always ask my kids. They're young, thirteen or fifteen. They participate in the process. I ask them. I said, Do you want to run this? <laughs> Am I doing this for you? And they're like, No, nah, don't do this for me. Do it for you <laughs> because we ain't running it. Okay, well, that's that's good to know. You're going to enjoy the fruits of the labor, but there are other people who may benefit from the, the legacy as far as the foundation is concerned. You just mentioned your kids. In addition to being an entrepreneur, you're also a single mom. Any advice for other women out there to help them navigate starting a business while also raising a family on their own? I color code everything. I have a whole calendar and everybody has their own color and every business has their own color. And if it's not on the calendar, it doesn't exist. So for me, I color code everything on the calendar. The kids don't have access to the calendar, but also there are times when I have to say no, meaning if there are 50 games for the year, um, they are very active in sports, then it's, I'm probably going to miss about five, right? And then having the conversation with them about, okay, I've been to 20, so if I miss two, not a big deal as long as not the major games, but communicating with them, I'm very transparent. I don't baby them. It, it, it literally run the household like a whole corporation. <laughs> and my daughter's literally like the VP of operations. She's 15, she's very bossy. <laughs> so <laughs> she keeps everybody together. So just being open and honest and not trying to do it all. Like I think we get lumped into this oh, I can do everything. I'm like, nah, I can't. And sometimes I'm going to be a great businesswoman and sometimes I'll be a great mom. But at having that balance and realizing sometimes I can't be all great things at the same time. And that is okay. Thank you so much, Tony, for sharing your small business success story. Everyone out there, please take a look at the company website, tipsyladycocktails.com. And you can also follow them on Facebook and Instagram at Tipsy Lady Cocktails. Check out the podcast channel on blackenterprise.com to find Sisters Inc. and other podcasts from Black Enterprise writers, editors, and experts. Be sure to subscribe to Sisters Inc. on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or YouTube. And if you like what you hear, show us some love by leaving a five-star review or put a sister on by spreading the word. This is Elisa Gums with Sisters Inc. for Black Enterprise.